Good morning again. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. I'll be reading 1 John chapter 5 verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Let's pray. Father, may the, the joy of these words that You give life in the Gospel, in Jesus, to those whom He is saving. May that joy ring in here. May it ring in the balance of the sobriety also of this text. That we would know more what it is to sense this unimaginable joy with that glorious grace of a holy fear of your weightiness. Do that here today. Help me teach nothing more than what's here. Help me teach nothing less than what's here. For you have seen fit from eternity to past unfold your written revelation through the Apostle John this way. So let us hear and be saved, be sanctified, be encouraged to the glory of your name. Amen. Last week in verses 14 and 15 we saw that John opened up the topic of prayer General prayer, Christian. Pray according to God's will. He hears it and you got it. You can go back and hear that if you didn't hear it. He's not done with prayer now. Now he turns specific about Christians in the local church praying for one another. He gets specific about intercessory prayer. And throughout this book, one of his core things he's been driving home is how we love each other. And this text about praying for each other concerning our battle with sin, which is the Christian life. I see my brother, my sister seems to be hardening that sin's going on without repentance, he says, stand in the gap. Intercede. Pray for their soul. So much more important than praying for their job. 
or a spouse or the children that they would get in the right class. Pray for their soul because they're caught in the web of sin. And this is what we who are members here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, this is what we mean by our church covenant, that we vow to, when our covenant says, we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. We will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and for each other. It's right here in this text. It's why it's in our covenant. Prayer for one another is a crucial part of God's ordained way of restoring a sinning brother or sister back into fellowship with Him. That's what He says. Pray, and look at the text. God will give life. Let's read it. Verse 16, 1 John 5. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, okay, this is in the local church. This is, this is those who are in the body of Christ, professing Christians. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he, the one seeing it, shall ask God, and God will give him life. In verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. I want you to notice first that all wrongdoing, it's technically the word in the original, unrighteousness, meaning anything, believer, that, that, that we walk in, that we choose to do, that is not living according to God's will, that's why every one of you sin every day. Even if you're born again, that's why you're convicted of it because you are born again. It is anything that is living according to the way God said don't. Or refusing to live the way He said do. Live. So you pray and God gives life and then what happens? Well, Then we Christians, yes, it. Oh, what a gift of grace. I see my sin and He brings me back to repentance. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He's just in order to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If anyone says that they have not sinned, we make him a liar. And His Word is not in us. But we don't make Him a liar as believers. We see the truth of Scripture. We receive the admonition. And God's grace of repentance is restored. He gives us life. 
Because when he says life here, this is what I think he means. When we sin, it interrupts a believer's fellowship with God the Father, with God the Son. Uh, There's something in the dynamic of communion that has been stunted. And he says now, you're in that sin, deceiving yourselves, hiding from God. He will give you life. He will restore that fellowship through others interceding on behalf of God. The brother, and they come again to First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, and joy is restored. That's the main point of our text. I come back there at the end, because I think if you're awake, something about this text kind of struck you and said, "What in the world?" So that's the question now for the next 40 minutes. What is he talking about when he says this sin unto death? That's what it literally is. Sin unto death. I don't say you should pray for that. Let's read the text again. Verse 16 and 7. Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, or not unto death, then he shall ask, and God will give him or her life. That is, in other words, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Or literally, to those who are sinning a sin not unto death. There is sin unto death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Let me just go at it straight. I think what he means here, by the sin unto death, he means spiritual death forever. He means lostness, not physical death, because Right there, John speaks of God giving life. Well, if he meant physical life, I don't. These persons he's referring to, unless you're thinking John says pray for the dead, these persons he's referring to are still living in their mortal bodies. So how would he be given immortal life? I think he means spiritual life. So he's not thinking about physical death here. He's he's thinking about the life of as we watch what happens on earth. Jesus came and He ushered in the kingdom and He purchased all who will be saved. He gave analogies of what happens. The kingdom of God is like a net that's thrown and all these fish are gathered in, but they're not all saved. The church is on earth because of Christ, but everyone who's in the net of the church is not necessarily saved. He means spiritual death here. 
those in the life of a church, I say not necessarily pray for that. It doesn't mean physical death. Now, now, the reason I even that is an option because look, in the New Testament, it's clear that God in His loving, disciplined hand takes people out with death. We see it in 1 Corinthians 11. The failure to judge your own life and how you're relating to others and not loving them in the body of Christ while you're taking communion, he says some have died because of it. Physically. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is upset that the church is not dealing with a member of the church who is living in unrepentant sexual immorality. He says, what are you doing? Deliver, kick him out and deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul may be saved. Or Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, they dropped dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. So he means here spirits of death, which leads to the next question then. What is sin unto spiritual death mean? Does it mean a particular kind of sin? Now what I mean is that's an important question because we're 2,000 years in church history. And throughout the history of the church, there have been many and even organizations who have said there are forgivable sins for the Christian church-going person, and there are unforgivable sins. For instance, the three top ones through church history were murder, unforgivable. Adultery, unforgivable. Idolatry, going back to idolatrous pagan worship. That's what developed within segments of the church over the last couple thousand years. And then that developed into the distinction within the Western church, the Roman church, what we call Roman Catholicism now, the distinction between mortal sins and venial sins. Mortal is just a Latin word. It has to do with death. Rigor mortis. It has to do with death. It means there are sins that after you've been baptized, after they would declare you have been regenerated or made alive, you sin a mortal sin, you die spiritually again. The life of God goes out. You need it restored. And thus, this, the doctrine, which is an unbiblical doctrine, of the sacrament of penance comes in, where with an ordained priest, if he's available, you make your confession and then you're granted back alive again because you committed a mortal sin and now that's washed clean and you go through the process throughout life. Venial sins, those are the ones like you can't help those. Those are minor, they're excusable. Okay? That's the distinction that's happened in church history. Okay, back to the text. When John says there's a sin unto death, I do not think he means a particular sin, like, in other words, murder, adultery, idolatry. I mean, just, just for one reason. I mean, David 
a man after God's own heart committed adultery. And then he committed murder. Yes, he didn't pull the trigger, but he behind the scenes pulled the trigger. And we would convict him today in our court of law. And the text is clear when Nathan came to him. God forgave David. They didn't know why, but it's only because Jesus was as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Jesus' blood, the eternal God who became a human being, there is no depth to which it cannot reach. But, now, if it's not therefore some specific sin, like in the Ten Commandments, or something like that, then what does it refer to? John does say here, there is sin unto death. I think the best answer is the context of John's letter. The context of what he's been referring to, one of his main points throughout the letter all along. Where within the church, doctrine arose that was denying the incarnation of Christ. Or to put it the way John would put it, those who are of God, listen to us. Doctrine was arising that was discounting the words of the Apostle over core issues of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So listen for a moment. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, remember John wrote, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Okay, get this now. There's, there's a Holy Spirit and there are spirits. Do not believe behind teachings. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit, when this teaching comes, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He is one and the same. The Christ is the human Jesus. Everyone who confesses that is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. So just feel that for a moment. And in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he wrote, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. He means in human form. They're humans. Okay? Have arisen. From this, we know that it is the last hour. Who's he talking about? They went out from us. He's talking about church members. He's talking about professing, baptized believers. 
Eventually down the road, the colors showed through. The doctrine came. They were challenged on it. You can't keep denying the apostles' word. You can't keep doing that. And they did, and they did, and they did. And eventually, they went out from us. But they were not really of us. Because if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. So there are people in the life of local churches for 2,000 years and all over the world today who claim to be Christians and eventually deny blatantly the doctrine of Jesus Christ. God becoming man. So what is John referring to here then about this sin unto death? Well, the way he puts it that way. And I think it's essentially what Jesus referred to when He said there's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Or, and we're going to go to both these places, what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 6 of Hebrews. But first, I want you now to turn to Matthew 12. Matthew 12, you just pick up in verse 31. Jesus is speaking. Every sin and every blasphemy, the word blasphemy has to do with speech. It has to do with something that's spewing out of the heart, it's coming out of your mouth. Okay. That's, that's the word. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, say all kinds of bad things about me, they will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Either in this age, or in the age to come. What's that? Now, many, many Christians have contended that, well, what Jesus means by the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that persistent, ongoing, and then final unbelief in Christ. In other words, it's final because they finally die. And they never came to Christ and now there's no more opportunity, which, which that's true. Death has ended their, op- ended their opportunity to believe, to repent and to believe in the Gospel and say, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, but, even though that's true, that physical death brings final unbelief to harden like concrete in the soul forever. And thus they will be unforgiven 
forever. That's true. But what Jesus said here, that saying that blasphemy and the Holy Spirit means that at death, now you've done it, it doesn't explain His warning about blasphemy, words against the Holy Spirit here. And why would John in our text say, I'm not saying you should pray for that person who has sinned unto death. Unless he's saying, well, you should pray for dead people. I don't think he's saying that. So these people are walking around alive. And he he they've already committed it. Does that make any sense yet? No, I get nothing. Not even Serge gave me an amen. So I'm really concerned. When Jesus spoke these words, it was in the context of the Pharisees, religious members of the synagogue, and highly, quote-unquote, biblical. When they declared, because people were drawing to Jesus because He was working miracles. He was healing the sick. And He was preaching in such a way they never heard such a thing. And they opened their mouths and said, well, He may cast out demons, but He's not doing it by the Holy Spirit. That's the devil. By the spirit of Beelzebul does he cast out demons. That's the context that Jesus makes this statement. And therefore, they willfully rejected Jesus' ongoing demonstrations of the power of the Holy Spirit through and in his life by attributing those works of God the Spirit to Satan. Okay, so just feel that for a minute. Okay, then that's when Jesus is going to go on and talk about but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Feel that for a minute. I'm going to go back to our context in the letter of John for a minute. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. He said, Who is the liar? Now I want you to feel this. The Pharisees, you're lying. And you're listening to the your father. Jesus spoke that way about them. Your father, the devil. They're lying in what they just said. And John says here, Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Okay, now in chapter 5, verse 10, John wrote, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony, and we saw this is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. They have the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God, they are saying, God's a liar. That's what He says. Because he or she has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. Holy Spirit gives a person unbelievable opportunity in the life of the church 
to believe. And they keep saying to the Spirit, No. And John says, That's the liar. Clearly this sin, whether you call it unto death or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin, this cannot be committed by non-churched, standard unbelievers. They're not accountable like the Pharisees. Being in the community here on earth and then being deliberate down the road and willful against the truth. Standard unbelievers, they're just blind and they're ignorant. Come unto Me, all you who labor. And every believer, pray for them in your life. But a people who sin against the Holy Spirit, they are the people like the Pharisees in Jesus' context, who claim knowledge, who claim a deep interest in religiosity. They're deeply involved in religious community. And then, like Hebrews chapter 6, you need to turn there. Down the road... In the life of the church, about 45 years after Jesus' death, we hear the writer to the Hebrews say in chapter 6, start with verse 4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Okay, don't miss it now. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This passage says that there is a spiritual condition that makes repentance and thus salvation in the end it makes it impossible. His words, it's impossible to restore to repentance. And then, but in between all that, he says, what am I talking about? Here's, here's the spiritual situation. Those who have had this glorious opportunity to receive great blessings highly religious experiences in the community. He says they have been enlightened that they're in the church where the light of Christ is. That is where it is. 
They're there. Week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. They get to experience the work of the Creator and the Savior, God the Holy Spirit, in the midst of the community. The heavenly gift they tasted of. They're tasting of the Word of God preached again and again and again. They are there when the powers of the future age are happening in portion in the life of the local church. That, okay, that's first. And then he says, they fall away. From what? From all that. From Christ. From the Spirit. From the Word. From the powers of the age to come. In effect saying, I found something better than that. Money! Sex! Spouse! Children! It's better than that. And in effect, the writer says, they re-crucify Christ and put Him to open shame. In other words, by saying, I've tasted it. I've been there. I'm not like an outsider. I'm not like a general pagan. I'm not like being raised in Syria and I'm a Muslim, it's all I know. I've been there under the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and down the road, I'm choosing. And he says, it is just like agreeing with those who put Jesus to death on the cross. That's where you have come to. Re-crucifying. Christ. And that's what leads the writer to the conclusion. If one meets, if that's true, then it is impossible to restore such a one to repentance. Now why don't you stay there in chapter 6. I want you to flip over a couple pages. Stay in the same context as this writer to chapter 12. Chapter 12, starting with verse 16. He writes, see to it, church, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. Now he's going to grab the analogy, right? You know your Bible. You know first five books of the Bible. You know Genesis. Or immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Got to get it. Esau, the promise of God to you that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, your dad. It's yours. You came out first. But he got really hungry one day. Food. What good is that if I stay hungry for the next number of hours when this pot of stew so good? Take my birthright. 
Don't toy with Jesus. It is a it is a glorious thing to be raised in a Christian home. And there is a type of sanctification because of it that you have been granted. And it is a dangerous thing. Don't toy with the Gospel. Let me finish my passage. Like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to... Don't misread this now. What did he want? Wait a minute. I want the blessing now. I woke up the next day or the next year. I want that prize. He was rejected because he found no, literally in the original, place. He found no place in him to repent. Though he sought it with tears. Well, if I put off Christ and sow some wild seed of partying and drugs and sexual promiscuity, I can come to Jesus later. I know the gospel. He just receives. Really? How do you know? you'll have a place in you of genuine repentance. Don't read this text in a wrong way. God will never reject genuine repentance. He didn't reject Esau who repented. Esau found no place in him down the road for repentance. He was hardened. And that's the same writer's point back in chapter 6, verse 6, when he says, it is impossible to restore this person again to repentance. And so, there is, quote-unquote, a sin unto death. Those persons who've committed it, they're persons who have been partakers of the visible local church. They have been those who have experienced over and over in the community of Christ certain works and blessings, the powers of the Holy Spirit in their presence, the Word of God being preached. And then turned against the Gospel. And in the context of John, made it clear. Nope. Let me become unreligious here. This religion fits me better. A Christ Spirit who came upon a human Jesus. Oh, whatever. You believe that way. I believe this way. This fits us better. The kind of manifestations you talk about, John, that if you're truly saved, that you love your brothers and sisters. Here's another one that fits my life better. These are persons that have been a part of God's people here on earth. They've tasted of it, and down the road, they willfully 
denounce the truth. And in the Apostle John's words, they refuse the testimony of the Spirit. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in what God has said are calling God a liar because they have not believed in the testimony that God Himself gave concerning His Son. Next question. Can a Christian commit the sin unto death? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It depends on what you mean by Christian. If you mean a person, like all of us who are born into sin, who has, and God is the only one who has perfect knowledge of this, but if you mean a person who has been born again, and thus their profession of faith really is the evidence of a genuine, saving, true faith in them, then no, they cannot commit this sin. I don't just say mean will not. They won't. Because they can't. And Jesus will never allow it. Thank goodness. All to whom the Father gives me, I lose None, zero of them. But not only that, just let's look at our context. Right after verse 17, these very heavy words, there is a sin unto death. The very next verse, John says this. Listen to him. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. That's John's theology. And we know that John does not mean by he doesn't keep on sinning, never sins. Can't mean that in the book. He can't even mean it in the context of the very verse before this. He just said there is sin of believers that is not unto death. That's why we pray for one another. He just said that. So doesn't he mean, therefore, in this context, oh, are you born of God? Then that person will not continue on and on and on and thus show that they're committing the sin unto death. Isn't that what he means by they don't continue to sin? Which means those born of God will not commit the sin unto death. See, because true Christians who have been regenerated and dwelt by the Spirit will not persist in unloving acts in constant disobedience to God's revealed commandments in the Scripture, in unbelief in His promises and the way they're living. They will come to repentance. And one of the means He does is because you pray for that person. And that person prays for you they will come back again and again to repentance but what about those who seemed to be Christian 
They shared their testimony, and it was stunning. And there was clear lifestyle change in their life. They may have gone to seminary and been in the ministry for 20 years. They could be a member of a board at a local church. What about those people who then down the road later fell into persistent, unrepentant sin and eventually deny Christ altogether the truth? What about them? John's answer to that question is in chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. Because if they were really of us, they would have remained and continued with us. So the point of 1 John 5 here, the point of Hebrews chapter 6, is that a person can be brought into the visible church and they can sprout up all kinds of visible fruit for a while, temporally, for a year, 24 years. They can experience real, not they're experiencing religious feelings. Like he says in Hebrews 6, 4-5, you've been tasting of the power of the age to come. Tasting of the Word of God. Show excitement about it. That can happen. And they not ever truly have been born again. Or justified by Christ, therefore, through their saving faith. Just one more. Hebrews 6, stay there. John, now listen to the analogy he uses after he makes these scary, stunning statements. It is impossible to restore them again unto repentance. Verse 7. For the land, here's his analogy, that has drunk the rain, okay, the rain is all these blessings, the good Word of God, the taste and the powers of the age to come, of the Holy Spirit and His presence, that's the rain, it's raining on them. Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated, that land receives a blessing from God. But if the other land, it's receiving all the rain and it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So the picture John gives then of what he just said is not of a person or of a field that bears genuine vegetation that you can partake of and eat. It's not his analogy. His analogy is there's land, a born-again person, and vegetation comes. And there's other professing Christians, and it's barren, and it's cursed. One can be a part, one can be a member, one can be a pastor of a visible church on earth and thus share in the light, share in the power of the Spirit, share in the good Word of God all in the midst of the Christian congregation. They can even be changed culturally. We're always changed culturally. So if you hang around a church, there's going to be some cultural changes. 
but then turn away down the road, renouncing the clear words from Jesus' personally sent apostles and core doctrines and core lifestyle. That land drank in the rain and it hardened them and hardened the ground and hardened the ground and hardened the ground because there was no life seed in the ground of new birth. Now, don't move from Hebrews 6. How do we feel that? Let me tell you, if you love Jesus, you're going to go out of here rejoicing. Look at the next verse, verse 9. Though, I'm, I'm in Hebrews 6, though we speak in this way, because some of you might even be feeling, why are you speaking this way? Well, the reason I'm doing it, because the text demands me to tackle the subject. Though we speak in this way, yet, in your case, beloved. Are you a beloved? Sinner, undone, broken person. Do you love Jesus? Did He really know you personally and pour out the Spirit of His Father into your heart crying, Abba Father. Okay, beloved, if that's you, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure, confident of better things than what I just said. Things that belong to salvation. And that's his key phrase, and that's what he's therefore talking about in this whole context of Hebrews 6. Things that belong to salvation. The better things he's talking about are the things that go along with those who do have salvation. In other words, he's saying he really believes. I know you guys. You're really saved. And therefore, you won't fall away. You won't commit the sin unto death. You won't be a barren, fruitless field. You will have fruit. But the writer does not believe that fruitlessness ongoingly and apostasy from the Gospel of Christ, he does not believe those two things go along with salvation. And neither does John. They went out from us to show that they never, ever, ever truly were of us. Now, this subject of the unpardonable sin, of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, of it is impossible to restore them unto repentance, or... John's words, the sin unto death. This doctrine for two millennia has been used by demonic forces to torment many genuine Christians. And so I want now you to listen to what I say very clearly and let it sink in. Those who fear 
they may have committed the unpardonable sin, unforgivable sin, sin unto death. Those who have any fear, did I do that? You can be absolutely sure you have not done it. To fear that you have is proof you have not. The people who are guilty of this sin are like the unbelieving, blasphemous Pharisees. Not all the Pharisees, like a Nicodemus and others who come to faith. But the people who commit this are like those Pharisees. There's no fear there. Have no fear. They're very confident. They're of the devil. And they sleep at night. They're self-satisfied about their dismissing the doctrines of Christ and the person of Christ as of the devil. Okay, that's when a person's in danger. There's, no, there's not going to be fear there. If you fear, know that you haven't. Know that you haven't. And, and, and if that fear is, okay then, this is serious, but my heart might, will it harden like Esau's, where there will be no true repentant fear anymore? Turn now. Don't ever wait. Let me also say this. To be bombarded by doubts about the person of Jesus Christ. Come on. It is. You should check it out historically in everything you possibly can because Christianity is bizarro. A human being slaughtered and tortured brutally to death like that and is dead and his blood has stopped pumping and rigor mortis is fully set in there now and he rises from the dead with a new immortal body. That's what you... Yes. We're saying that's why there's anything. We're saying that's why there's creation and anything. Okay. But... So to have been and to be bombarded at times of doubts. Okay, what am I believing? I, I, is that true? Is it not is not the sin unto death. It is not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But let me say this to you. When, even if down the road as a Christian, you are bombarded with doubts to come into your head, here's the question. Are you troubled by those doubts? Do you regret that any of those doubts are there? Would you like to get rid of those doubts? If the answer is yes to those, then you are far away from blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Those who have sinned unto death are not troubled or worried. Those who have ears to hear talk like this from Jesus and from John. They are those who hear the writer to the Hebrews very clearly when he said before chapter 6 in chapter 3, take care, be cautious, professing Christian brothers and sisters, lest 
there be in any one of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But be in community. But encourage one another every day as long as it is still called today so that none of you may seem to have fallen short of it. Because here's the truth. We have become truly partakers of Christ if indeed we hold fast our profession of faith in the true Christ to the end. They take that with blood-earnest seriousness. All believers, I ain't going to be one of those who love you, Jesus, too much. But those who have committed this sin, they're cocky. They're certain that they're right in their theology and their thinking and their lifestyle and they have contempt for the Apostle John's teaching and Paul's teaching and Peter's teaching. They have contempt for it. Now, as I'm closing, all other sin and sinning that is short of whatever he's talking about here like that, unto death, because I'm going to get there in a moment. I don't know if you've committed it. I'm going to pray for you. All other sin that falls short of that, we can pray for We can pray for with a deep confidence as we saw in last week's text when we pray for ourselves and we pray for each other in the body of Christ concerning our souls and our sin with confidence. And that's His will. And He thus will answer and restore life, fellowship, joy. So we should pray for each other. Because our access to the Father through Jesus Christ, we know He hears us. And if we know He hears us, we know that we have the request we have asked of Him. Now, in the text, John does not say, do not pray for that person who's committed the sin unto death. He doesn't say that. He says it this way. I do not say that one should pray for that. There's a slight difference there. Let me just say, I've been a believer, came to Jesus at 19, it's been 34 years. I think 34. Almost. I have never had an experience yet where I think, oh, I know. I'll never pray for that person again. They're gone. I don't know. I've just never been there. I don't know how to get there and I'm okay with it. So I don't go to sleep thinking, should I pray or should I not? It's safer to pray. We have a miracle working God. But So as I close literally now, in 60 seconds, come on. Let us all become more loving, sovereign grace. There's lots of ways, but now here here it is this morning. Become more loving because no one's looking at you. 
no one knows you're doing it, but you're praying for me. Or her. Or him. You're praying, God, let your word become infectious in that hard heart that may be there in that marriage. In that besetting sin. Pray really. Be expectant. The Father will act. He will give life to that brother and sister. And new joy and new repentance and a deeper faith will come. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will give him or her life. Father, we thank You that on this side of the cross, unlike David, unlike Abraham, unlike all the pre-Jesus saints, we know why that text is true. We know why You are never denying Yourself. You're always upholding Your glory and Your perfect righteousness and holiness, and yet You're forgiving us because You do not pass over sin. You have justly dealt with all the sin of all believers for all time once and for all in the cross of Christ. You are good, Father. Would You cause us to pray for ourselves and for one another in a constant, ongoing way in this local church and in all of Your local churches throughout this world, Father, to the glory of Jesus Christ.